So the topic for tonight is the last of the seven factors of awakening, equanimity, upeka. It's, uh, it's the crown jewel of the seven factors. And in some ways it's at the end of the list because in some ways it could be thought of as the culmination of the other factors. And in some other ways, it can be thought of as the beginning. It's the factor that supports the development of all the other factors. It supports the development of sati, mindfulness, as Matthew talked about, as well as its presence really allows wise investigation, etc., etc. So, as you might have figured out by now, all the factors pretty much support one another. There are ways that you can think of them flowing one to another or, or being serial in some ways and also in ways that they all interact with one another. It's all true. It's all correct. There's not one or the other. So equanimity in English, it's, it's evokes, it's a beautiful word in English. So the word comes from Latin in, in, in English, from Latin equanimitas, having an even mind, or aquos even mind, even animus, mind and soul. So aquos is even, and animus is mind and soul, which according to the font of all knowledge, Wikipedia, is a state of psychological stability and composure which is undisturbed by that which may cause others to lose the balance of their mind. A state of psychological stability and composure which is undisturbed by that which may cause others to lose the balance of their mind. Merriam-Webster has a shorter definition, evenness of mind, especially under stress. Evenness of mind, especially under stress. A few synonyms I'd like to share with you and let them wash over you and see what, what kind of feeling they evoke in you as you hear the words. Calmness, aplomb, collectedness, composedness, composure, cool, coolness, equilibrium, imperturbability, I like that one, imperturbability, self-composedness, serenity, and the opposite, the antonyms being agitation, discomposure, perturbation. Alan Locus says, a modern definition of equanimity is just the word cool, cool, referring to one whose mind remains stable and calm in all situations. So equanimity is, is a virtue and it's a value that 
is extolled and advocated not just by Buddhism, but by a number of major religions and ancient philosophies. So we don't, so Buddhists don't have monopoly over over equanimity. Not that you would think so. It's very important in Hinduism, in yoga, in in Stoicism, Romans and Greeks extolled the value of equanimity quite a bit. In Judaism, it's very important. In Christianity, Baha'i faith, and in Islam, it's actually quite fundamental to Islam. It's interesting, the word Islam, and by the way, I was I was born in, in Iran, so I was born into a Muslim family, so when I found this, it was very interesting to me, something perhaps I knew when I was a kid and I totally forgot, so I offered for your reflection also. So the word Islam is derived from the Arabic word Aslama, which denotes the peace that comes from total surrender and acceptance. Surrender and acceptance is the same as equanimity. A true Muslim would experientially behold that everything happening is meant to be and stems from the ultimate wisdom of God. Hence, being a Muslim can therefore be understood to mean that one is in a state of equanimity. So that's what that means. I'd like to quote Gail. Gail says, Equanimity is one of the most sublime emotions of Buddhist practice. It is the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector of compassion and love. While some may think of equanimity as dry neutrality or cool aloofness, mature equanimity produces a radiance and warmth of being. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. Isn't that beautiful? Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. What a lovely state to be in. Hmm, state of equanimity. Hmm. And it is true that that one might think of it as cool or aloof, but it isn't. Equanimity has a, has a warmth to it, especially when practiced. I can talk. I will talk more about this later. It's not a dry neutrality. It really is that radiance and warmth of being that underlies true equanimity of being okay with things just as they are, not being moved or shaken or perturbed. Things is just, just as they are, just as they have turned out to be. The word upekka in Pali, U-P-E-K-K-H-A, upekka, the word means to see, to oversee, overview, it's the bird's eye perspective of looking at something. It's not caught. So basically, it's the stance that comes to us, to our heart, from seeing the bigger picture. When you see the bigger picture, 
there can be more equanimity. For example, say, if you interact with someone, with someone whom you already know, and you have this bigger picture of this person has an angry nature, and they, when, when you engage with them, when they're angry at you, then you take their offensive words less personally because you have a bigger picture. You realize, ah, this is the way they are. So in that way, having the bigger picture, the bird's eye view of what is actually happening, it helps you remain more equanimous. You can have more ease about it. Oh, it's not just me, you know. She, she just behaves this way or she's had a bad day or whatever it is. It gives you a bigger view, right? You can take it in less personally and, and have more equ- um, equanimity in this way. So opeka, having the bird's eye perspective, not being caught, having a bigger picture of what's going on instead of just, just the picture of w- what is happening. Another word that in Buddhism is, word, is also translated as, as equanimity um, is tatra majatata, tatra majatata, which is a compound made of three simple Pali words. Tatra means there, which sometimes means all these things. Tatra, all these things. Maja. Maja means middle. That might be familiar to you from Majima Nikaya, the middle length discourses, middle. So that word means middle. The third one being tata, to stand or to pose. So tatra majatata, say that fast many times, tatra majatata. If you put it together, it becomes to stand in the middle of all this. To stand in the middle of all this. Referring to balance, referring to remaining centered in the middle of whatever is happening. And this balance come from, comes from inner stability, the balance to stand in the middle of all this, whatever this is in your life, whatever is happening. The balance coming from this inner stability the strong presence of inner calm, the inner being, sense of confidence, vitality, and integrity that can keep us upright, like a ballast that keeps the ship upright in strong winds. It's a feeling of being okay being okay, just simply being okay, regardless of circumstances, standing with integrity and stability in the middle of all this, not being shaken, perturbed, or moved. It's really, it's it's part of the practice, it's part of the development of this path, this beautiful quality. It is quite a daily life asset, both, I'll I'll talk more about the development of it in a moment, also on the cushion and your practice, and in daily life it's it's quite an asset, as you can imagine, if you could be equanimous when things are happening, not lose your cool. Lazy, whose um, um, Taoist teacher says, 
If you play a game where scrap pieces of glass are at stake, you will play skillfully. If your expensive belt buckle is at stake, you'll start to get clumsy. If it's your money that's at stake, you'll fumble. It's not that you've lost your skill. It's because you are so flustered by things happening outside that you've lost your calmness inside. Lose your stillness and you will fail in everything you do. It's a feeling of equanimity. It's that stillness. is that stability within that can help us. Equanimity in daily life can serve as a protection from what's called the eight worldly winds. The eight worldly winds. I love this list. The eight worldly winds. <coughs> Namely, they are <coughs> praise and blame. You get praised and you get blamed. Fame and disrepute. Success and failure, also sometimes known as gain and loss. And the last pair is pleasure and pain. The eight whirly winds. Nobody's immune from them. If you've been praised, just wait long enough. Blame will happen at some point. If you've had gain, loss might happen. It's just, it's the whirly winds. Pleasure, pain, we know about all that. Sitting on the cushion, you felt pleasure, you felt pain, you felt everything in the middle. Fame and disrepute, the same. The same, we've all in some ways felt some version of it in our lives. So becoming attached to or, or excessively elated to the good stuff, to the, to the success, to the praise, to the fame, or to pleasure, it can actually set, set one up for suffering when the winds of life change direction. And the winds of life do change direction all the time. One thing that is certain is change. For example, success can be wonderful, but it can but if it leads to arrogance, then we have more to lose in the future because then we start to think of ourselves as always successful, never prone to failure. It can be such so disheartening. Or becoming personally invested in praise can lend towards conceit. And again, when blame comes, it can be a lot more difficult to take. Instead of praise, okay, blame, okay. Having the equanimity to let it all roll off. It is what it is. Identifying with the bad stuff, identifying with failure, can make us feel incompetent and inadequate. So instead of just seeing it as, as is letting it arise and pass away, seeing that also, having equanimity with respect to failure, being okay, being completely okay with failing. It's okay to fail, it's part of life, it's okay. In reacting to pain, we can become discouraged if we identify with it. So if we really understand or feel that our sense of inner well-being is independent of the eight winds, 
we are more likely to remain even keeled in their midst if our sense of happiness, if our sense of well-being is not dependent on what's happening outside, on the praise, on the blame, on whatever is happening, whatever is hitting, if, if there is this stability, if there's this equanimity of holding, standing under all this, then that is freedom. That is a sense of freedom. We can be free regardless of the waves, no matter what the waves of the ocean are, whatever is being handed our way. It's a sense, it's a wellspring of well-being from the inside. Stability, confidence. It's not arrogant and it's not cool and aloof. It is caring. It is warm. It is connected. with the conditions and with other beings, but it's not affected, it's, it's stable. It recognizes the emptiness of self and all things. I'll talk more about that. When the mind has equanimity, and you might have seen this on the cushion. The mind can hold what's pleasant and unpleasant equally. There, there can be no difference between what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. It could be unpleasant sensation in the body or a pleasant sensation in the body. If there is upekka, if there is the seventh factor developed, if, if one is dwelling in that, it could be held both both pleasant and unpleasant and neutral all three feels feels they feel no different they can feel no different so equanimity sounds great how do i sign up <laughs> How do we develop this? How do we develop it? There are many, many doors into the temple. Many doors into the temple. Here's a poem by Mary Oliver called Today. Today I'm flying low and I'm not saying a word. I'm letting all the voodoos of ambition sleep. The world goes on as it must. The bees in the garden rumbling a little, the fish leaping, the gnats getting eaten, and so forth. But I'm taking the day off, quiet as a feather. I hardly move through, I hardly move, though really I'm traveling a terrific distance. Stillness, one of the doors into the temple. That's what you guys have been doing. You've hardly moved, but I bet you've traveled a terrific distance <laughs> compared to the day you walked into this door. Terrific distance, stillness in this stillness. So equanimity can be practiced as a formal practice. It's not something that we've practiced here together, but it can be practiced as part of 
the what's known as the Brahma Viharas, as the the practices of the heart, as the heavenly abodes, together with loving kindness, compassion, vicarious joy, and the last one being Opeka or equanimity. In that way, it is a formal practice where one actually sits on the cushion and and brings situations into mind, people in mind, situations in mind, and one um, tries to tap into this feeling of equanimity and reciting phrases such as, may I accept things as they are, or things as they are, or it's like this, or this too. You've heard me say this too, this too. That's part. That's been part of my equanimity practice that that uh, I still use in daily life. Oh, this too. Oh, or it's like this. It's like this. It's like this to be tired. It's like this to be sad. Oh, it's like this. And then there is ease with what's happening. Other phrases that one can use for this formal practice. May I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of all things because there are lots of comings and goings of all things, if you've noticed in your life. Many beginnings, many endings. May I be undisturbed. May I be okay with all of the comings and goings of all things. May I be at peace. May I be at peace. May I hold this all with equanimity. The formal practice can be quite beautiful. And having practiced this, having practiced equanimity quite intensely actually, the feeling that arose for me, and and before I practiced this, I had a feeling like I heard equanimity, I would hear that it's not supposed to be aloof and cool, but I'm like, it sounds pretty aloof to me, I don't know. So until I practiced it really, really intensely, um, with with concentration absorptions, um, really getting a feel for it in, in long silent meditation on the meditation retreat, and it is true. Equanimity, the, the what it tastes like, referring to the way the question was written last night in the QA session, what equanimity tastes tastes like, is. This complete okayness, it's just unperturbabilities, the unmoving of the mind and heart, just complete okayness, which is not aloof, it's, it is connected, it is related, it is warm, it is caring, it is caring, but it's unmoved, it's caring without dropping into, falling into anything. It just holds everything. It holds the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows unmoved. That's what it feels like. It is spacious. It is caring. But it's unmoved. or And it's unmoved. Unperturbed. Other ways into the temple. Other ways into the temple. As we practice, as we practice, as you practiced here, and and we've instructed you, we've we've suggested to you 
in our instructions to, to be with your experience, to be with the experience, to recognize it, to be with it, to be intimate, to be intimate with your experience, that intimacy. Being with the experience gently, whatever it is, whether it's difficult or not, being with that experience in the wise way. And what does it mean to be with, with experience in a wise way? Say, say, for example, if you're angry and if you're stewing in anger, you know, fueling it when, with the ideas of self-righteousness, I'm wrong, that other parties are right, I mean, I'm, I'm right, the other parties are wrong, um, feeling victimized or just whatever it is, it, you know, that, that the storyline, that, that is not the wise way, for example, to be with anger. You're stewing in it, but it's not the wise way to be with it, to be intimate with that anger experience. The wise way to really get to know that would be to get in touch with the feeling, not the thoughts, not the stories of this papancha, the big stories, but getting in touch with the feeling of, of what it's like to be angry. What does it feel like in the body? What, what is it like to be angry? What's how painful is it to be angry? Getting in touch with the dukkha, being intimate with that, because anger and ill will, as Matthew was talking about, the poison root and honey tip. There's the honey tip of of the the pleasure that one can get from the the stories and the self righteousness. It can be very energizing. Can just be can make you feel alive, right? Um, but it is. It really has that poison fruit that we often don't feel. And if you bring attention to what it really feels like to be angry, what's what's the what's the pain of it? And you realize the person who's getting hurt the most is yourself. You can be really intimate with. The experience of anger, not not on the surface, not on the top, but really in a visceral way. It's painful to be angry. It's really painful. And guess who's hurt the most? It's often likened to throwing a um, um, picking up, um, picking up. Um, a piece of hot coal that's still hot red and wanting to throw it at someone. Guess who gets hurt picking up the hot coal first? So, so with wisdom, being with the pain, really feeling the dukkha, and what, what is that like? Ouch, feeling that. And what's under it? What's under it? It's often hurt. It's almost always hurt. Some kind of hurt, some kind of pain. Giving it space, being able to hold that energy, being able to hold the anger, being able to hold what's underneath it, giving it space, giving it space without reactivity, without acting out of it in your mind, in your speech, in your actions. 
I can stay with this too, this too, this can be here too, don't have to act out of it, this too, don't need to get reactive, be reactive. So there can be space and equanimity holding the anger, the hurt underneath. There can be equanimity holding, there can be space holding that. So the more capacity we develop to be with what is difficult, to be intimate with what is difficult. And again, know your limits. Sometimes mindfulness is not strong enough to stay with something that's difficult. And that's perfectly okay. You gently back off. It's perfectly fine. And building that muscle to be able to stay with what is difficult whether it's anger, whether it's sadness, whether it's loneliness, whether whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever shape, color, flavor of dukkha happens to be visiting that day, the capacity to stay with that and staying with that and holding that with ease, holding that with equanimity, starting small, starting with the one pound weight, going to the two pounds, not taking on the 50 pound weight the first day, but, but starting, starting small, starting where equanimity can be there. Equanimity can grow. Equanimity can grow if you are intimate with experience. The more you can be with the experience and not lose your equanimity, the more you are developing equanimity. Does that make sense? So the more you can be intimate with experience, the more it can grow without falling into it. Again, start with small weights. And that is freedom. That is freedom in the moment because it's a moment of freedom when you can be, for example, with the three pound weight that was impossible months ago, a year ago, the three pound weight that was impossible a year ago, but now you can stay, stay with it. This too, I can stay with this too, this too, it's okay. Oh, oh, sadness is like this. Ah, yeah, I can be okay with not being okay. Yeah, I can give that space. Yeah, it's like this. And that's how it can grow, that's how it can grow. A variation of this, it's and similar to, to being intimate with experience. Another way to say it is what you have heard often, both on this retreat and elsewhere, about acceptance, accepting what is, accepting what is, being okay with what is, being okay, being totally okay with what is. Ex- an acceptance I want to be very clear. Acceptance does not mean acquiescing to whatever situation is presenting itself in the world, whatever the situation is. It does not mean that. So what does it mean then? Acceptance means allowing the truth of this moment be just as it is right now. 
in this moment, it's feeling really heavy. It's feeling really difficult. Can I let this be? Can I be okay with this? Can I accept the reality, the truth of this moment as it's presenting right now? That is what acceptance means, not accepting the whole, embracing the whole situation. And it's not a resigned acceptance. Acceptance is not giving up or giving in or giving up any hope. It's not a resignation. It's an embracing acceptance. It's, it, there's power in it. There is, there, is, there is choice. Ah, embracing, accepting, embracing what is, embracing, loving what is, taking it all. Acceptance, in some ways, it's also synonymous for letting go, which is another practice that many of you are familiar with. Letting go, letting go. I'd like to read you a quote from Ajahn Sumedho, from the Thai forest tradition, an elder. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking, you simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than to try, rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma <laughs> and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Madhyamika <laughs> and the Prajnaparamita get ordinations in Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, <laughs> just let go, let go, let go. He continues, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I try to understand or figure things out, I would say, let go. Let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age. Maitreya radiating love through the world, but instead I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we only have these simple poverty-stricken poverty practices. <laughs> practice of letting go, letting go. It is a practice of equanimity. It's a practice of being okay with things as they are, not wanting things to be any different than they are. Letting go. Things are like this. It's like this. Letting go. Letting go. Hmm. 
T.S. Eliot says, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to keep still. And that's, that is also a lesson in equanimity, to care and not to care. There is that warmth in the equanimity. There is the warmth of caring and not to care. It's, it's okay, letting go, things as they are, accepting the truth of the moment. These are all different ways of saying the very same thing. Whichever one speaks to you the most. With letting go, practice the same way that the same way that acceptance is not a resignation, is not a giving up. So approaching the practice of acceptance is a particular way to approach it, is an embracing. Similarly with letting go practice, it's not a practice of spiritual bypass. It's not a practice, oh, let go. I'm beyond that. I'm like, it's okay. So, so look at the intention. Look at how these practices are done for you, how you're approaching them. Things can be let go when they are actually explored, when you have been intimate with the experience. Then you can really let them go. When you have been intimate with the pain and the suffering, you can let it go. But before that, it might be too premature. So, Wisdom, always allow wisdom to come in, to be your guide, how to apply these practices. Equanimity relates to not-self, to the idea of anatta and emptiness, which relates to what Gil likes to say, and I love the way he puts it, the path of practice, the goal, one of the goals being becoming undefendable, un, unoffendable, unoffendable, how you cannot become offended, becoming unoffendable. When there is less and less of our ego at stake, when equanimity grows, that we naturally become more and more offend, unoffendable. There is so much equanimity, and there isn't so much ego at stake. Sure, go ahead, praise, blame. You know, there is not so much at stake. Here is on relationship of equanimity and emptiness says Master Huang from the 3rd century BC. If a man, having lashed two hulls together, is crossing a river, and an empty boat happens along and bumps into him, no matter how hot-tempered the man may be, he will not get angry. But if there should be someone in the other boat, then he will shout, shout out, to haul this way or veer that. If his first shout is unheeded, he will shout again. And if that is not heard, he will shout a third time, this time with a torrent 
of curses following. In the first instance, he wasn't angry. Now in the second, he is. Earlier, he faced emptiness. Now he faces occupancy. If a man could succeed in making himself empty and in that way wander through the world, then who could do him harm? An emptiness, if a man could make himself empty, emptiness is not something so much that you do, something that happens, it, it just comes up when you practice, it happens when the mind sees, when the mind continues to do this practice, and it sees the uncontrollability, it sees that all things are p part of, born of causes and conditions, all the all the causes and conditions that, that affect us and everything that we have become. It's a set of causes and conditions. There isn't so much a center. There isn't so much a, a me there. And that me, that self, kind of gets out of the way. It can get out of the way and not be so of offendable, not be so easily offended. It's the fruit of the practice. It's not the path exactly. It's not that you try so much. It becomes the fruit of the practice, the emptiness, the unoffendability. Equanimity and patience. are also related. Walt Whitman says this in Leaves of Grass. I existed as I am, that is enough. If no other in the world be aware, I sit content. And if each and all be aware, I sit content. One world is aware and by far the largest to me, and that is myself. And whether I come to my own today or in 10,000 or 10 million years, I can cheerfully take it now, or with equal cheerfulness, I can wait. That is equanimity. <laughs> yeah. standing under all this, being unoffendable, expanding our capacity for equanimity, for being unperturbed, unoffendable, by staying with, by exploring, by understanding what's difficult, not running away from it, but being with it wisely. By wise acceptance, embracing acceptance, by letting go of what doesn't need to be, by letting go to what we don't really need to attach to, to cling to, to what is unprofitable, 
is not the path to happiness, doesn't bring us peace. Letting go of that, letting go of that. I'd like to end with a poem from Rumi, My Countryman, translated by Coleman Barks. For years, I pulled my own existence out of emptiness. Then one swoop, one swing of the arm, that work is over. Free of who I was, free of presence, free of dangerous fear, hope. Free of mountainous wanting. The here and now mountain is a tiny piece of a piece of straw. The here and now mountain is a tiny piece of a piece of straw blown off into emptiness. These words I'm saying so much begin to lose meaning. Existence, emptiness, mountain, straw. Words and what they try to say swept out of the window down the slant of the roof. Let's sit together with equanimity. accept things as they are. May I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of all things. May I be unoffendable. May I be at peace. for your kind attention.